The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading solar inverter supplier by volume in the world, and it is now a leading supplier across the Americas. With the world's most powerful 250-kilowatt, 1,500-volt string inverter, SunGrow is providing disruptive technology for utility-scale projects. Find out more at sungrowpower.com. That's sungrowpower.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. In Boston, I'm your host, Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. In our episode this week, Donald Trump's strange speech about protecting the environment. Why now? What does it tell us about how voters feel about the issue going into the election? Then New York's big climate law. How does the state plan to cut emissions 85% by 2050 and have California and New York kicked off a race to the top? Finally, we tackle the seasonal debate over air conditioning. I know two people who are sitting in the sweltering heat without air conditioning because I make them turn it off to record. They are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. They're my co-hosts. Catherine is the chair of 38 North Solutions. She's in the fine city of Washington, D.C. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Alexa, lower the temperature to 72 degrees. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't get swept away by those floods. No, but of course we had just finished our basement and uh, water started coming in. Oh, no, that construction project you were talking about already got impacted. Yeah, we're fixing it. Jigger Shaw's in San Francisco this week. Hey, Jigger. I'm on the 10th floor, so no water. (laughs) Well, on July 8th, Donald Trump stood in the East Room of the White House and delivered a speech on protecting the environment. What could he possibly talk about? The man has never let reality stand in the way, though. He used the opportunity to boast about his 4th of July party and how many people came to see him. Then he criticized the Obama White House for signing on to a global climate deal, and he praised the increase in domestic fossil fuel production. Let's uh, hear some of that Trump magic. Other countries, their pricing on electricity is so high, not even to be affordable. At our level, we are doing numbers that nobody's seen before. Nobody believes what what we're doing and what we're producing electricity and other things for. He then went on to talk about some local environmental cleanup efforts at Superfund sites, cleaning up algae blooms and some federal land management practices. He boasted about how much he's doing to clean up the air and water. Onlookers called the speech Orwellian. The Trump EPA, after all, has tried to pull America out of a global climate agreement, sent officials to try to sell coal at the latest U.N. climate summit, forced climate scientists out of the government and rolled back 83 environmental rules. So our audience knows the score here. I don't think we need to go through and do some major fact check of every misleading statement from the speech. I'm mostly curious about why this is happening now. Trump has never really made remarks like this on the environment. So what is happening that pushed his team to write the speech? Before we get there, I do want to talk through the remarks just a bit. Catherine, what was your reaction to the speech? Yeah, so you think it's hard to listen to a speech like this that goes on for quite a long time and spends a lot of time gaslighting us all. It is even harder to read the transcript as an English major. It's just so painful. 
Um, but yeah, so what he did was he tried to lay out all the amazing things that they've done. And then he brought up a whole bunch of testimonials, people, a guy who runs Billy Bones Bait and Tackle in Florida, somebody who's a county commissioner from Southern Oregon, um, a whole bunch of his cabinet, including uh, Andrew Wheeler from the EPA, Mary Newmeyer, who's the head of CEQ, the Council on Environmental Quality, David Bernhard, who runs the Department of Interior, and Rick Perry of course, Department of Energy, um, and, you know, had them all testify as to not just what they've done, but how amazing he is as a leader. And I got the sense that this was about trying to have a narrative, at least that he has been focused on the environment when the reality, as we know, is that he has been completely pulling apart all of the federal structures that have been working on environmental issues. So let's talk about the politics in a moment. First, I do want to talk about two major claims that he made and his cabinet members made. And that was emissions are dropping under his administration and that we have the cleanest air and water in history under his administration. Important to put both of those in context. Obviously, uh, he's rolling back many of the environmental regulations that created that clean air and clean water in the first place. But that happened over many decades, over many administrations before his. And so we can't credit really anything to this administration to the current status of our environment. Also, when we look at carbon emissions, that came from the rise of natural gas and the eventual rise of renewables and efficiency from the Bush administration through the Obama administration. And now under the Trump administration, we have seen emissions creep back up in the electric power sector. So that's actually false that you know emissions have been dropping because now they're starting to move back up in the U.S. So can you both just unpack both of those claims for me and help us understand the historical context a bit more? Yeah. So he actually used the date since 2000 emissions have gone down, which is true. They have. It's just that under his clock, they've started going back up. But that's he did use the right date on dropping emissions. One of the ones that stood out for me was that he said air pollution, our air pollution, which is, of course, the best in the world, is six times lower than average when the reality is our smog and ozone rating is we're 123rd out of 195 countries. We're pretty bad. Um, he also touted how well he's doing on all these programs when his budget requests have been decimating all these programs. And it's only because of Congress and the appropriations process that have said, no, you're not going to shut down these programs, that they remain intact. Another claim he made was that the Green New Deal was going to cost $100 trillion. And that was just made up. There is nowhere that says any number to the Green New Deal. It's a resolution, you know, different Candidates for president on the Democratic side have said that they would like to invest trillions of dollars in climate policy, but the $100 trillion is just made up. Well, guess what? Turns out a lot of conservative voters love the Green New Deal when they're polled on it. Multiple polls have shown that conservative voters actually like the plan uh, before Fox News gets a hold of it. They they can change the polls pretty dramatically based on their messaging. But if you neutralize the question, people actually really love the plan. So not only is he uh, misrepresenting the number or just pulling a number out of thin air, 
he's actually like disconnected from what a lot of his base voters want or like. Yeah. And so a couple of things. One is that if you're a Trump voter and you love him, there's nothing he's going to say pro or against the environment that is going to change that. That's just not you know, you're going to like him no matter what. If you listen to Fox News and that's where you get your information, then then it won't matter either. But if you're just an average citizen who doesn't spend a lot of time reading the news or watching the news, but you just go online to Google and you look up EPA or Department of Energy, the messaging there says we are doing great and here's how we're doing. When the reality is, is behind every single message on their website is the true story of even though they say we're doing X, Y, and Z on coal ash and it's great, it's actually worse. So the messaging to me is much more dangerous, um, especially if you're just an average citizen going to find out information. So, you know, one thing that I noticed in the speech was that he mentioned that he's a big believer in solar energy. So that's got to be something. <laughs> I did. But he also said it was very far away and it had a very long way to go. Yes, that he likes exactly. It. It's, it's got a long way to go. It hasn't really um, developed yet, Jigger. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, you know, the one thing I'd say about this whole thing, though, is I think it's important to sort of... Um, you know, put this stuff into context. I mean, when Fox News covered the speech, it was Bill Shepard that was on stage there. And and he actually cut away from the speech because he knew it was such propaganda and actually put up um, all the regulations that the Trump administration had repealed and said, look, this is just patently false on Fox News. So for what it's worth, I mean, I think pretty much nobody was fooled. And and so I, I don't I don't know that I want to like necessarily give people the impression that it was successful because I don't think any of the real media outlets covered it in the way that he wanted it covered, which is why he then went on a rant against Fox News. So then the question is, who is this for? Um, clearly, his administration and his reelection campaign looked at the polling numbers and said, wow, people actually care about the environment. It may not be a top issue for voters. But it's climbing up the ranks for conservative voters, and it's certainly at the top for moderate to left voters. So obviously, if you're a Trump voter, he could say anything and you're going to stick with him. If you're if you're hardcore Trump, there's nothing that he could do wrong to make you vote for the other side. But there's a whole swath of voters that care about the environment. It may not be an issue that moves them on its own. But they certainly care about it, and the polls show that it's climbing up their priorities. How is he trying to message to those folks, and who are those folks, and what are the polls telling the Trump administration about the importance of this issue? So, honestly, I don't think that the speech was from for anybody but the president. <laughs> this is a speech I, that was designed to make him feel good about himself as I think most of his speeches are. So that's why they bring all these people up to tell him how wonderful he is. He wants to be cool and he wants to be, you know, in power and in charge and feel good about himself. And that's who I think it was for. I don't think it was, it's not going to change anybody's minds. I mean, North Carolina, 85% of Republicans in North Carolina said they would vote for someone if they supported renewable energy, but they still might vote for Trump. Well, I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that because that's how most of these speeches go in their delivery. Right. Trump wouldn't have it any other way. But I do think that there's something else going on here. If you look at, 
you know, Washington Post, ABC News uh, polling, the the Green New Deal does quite well. And voters are saying that the environment is moving up um, their priority list. If you look at Yale polling, they're seeing the same thing. Uh, a bunch of other political polls, both for public consumption and internal polls, are showing that the environment is really important for voters. And actually, a lot of conservative voters are starting to care about climate change more and more. So I think it's pretty clear from the polls that I've read and the reporting on this that there's some strategizing going on with the administration that they felt like we've got to do something, even if it is just making the president feel good about himself. We've got to do something for our public image to at least put our stake in the ground on this issue as we enter election season, because they don't want the Democrats to totally own this issue. It is increasingly prevalent that people know people who've had cancer. People know people who've had to buy water from Walmart because, you know, they can't drink their drinking water. There's like, there's lots of like sort of data points out there that make people feel like we're not making progress on clean air and clean water. And it happened under the Obama administration just as much as it's happening under the Trump administration. And those data points make people like jazzed up around figuring out what to do about these issues. And frankly, I think one of the things the Trump administration has done a great job of is forcing Democratic governors to actually lead, which is why, you know, I'm happy to see. I don't know that 100% clean energy bills would have passed if Hillary Clinton was the president, right? I think that part of the reason they've passed is just to poke President Trump in the eye and Secretary Perry in the eye, right? And so... You know, particularly, I would say, in New York, where I don't know that Andrew Cuomo has ever said that he wants his legacy to be climate legislation. But he's been leading all of a sudden because of these kinds of speeches from Trump and all the media that comes out that says he's not doing anything. But who is doing something? And is the governor of New York doing something? And then suddenly they are doing a lot more at the state level now. Yeah. So, I mean, that's great that there's this unintended consequence of something that one person does that the other person decides to push back on. But there are things that are getting taken apart piece by piece in our federal government and with our federal brain trust that I don't know how we're going to put back. And one of those I just wanted to highlight because uh, Rachel Maddow did a great piece on this. It was a very in-depth piece, and I was sort of shocked that she went into such detail on a climate change issue which is our agriculture department, there are two science agencies, the National Institute for Food and Agriculture and the Economic Research Service, that basically those agencies were told they were need to move to Kansas City or they would lose their jobs. There's actually no place for them to go in Kansas City. There's not like a facility there that they would move into. So 70% of them are leaving. Those are researchers that have been there for decades and have built up such an amazing amount of you know, brain power and resources that our government can use to help people. And that's what we're losing right now. And that's what he's papering over and that people aren't really looking deeply enough. Well, that's why I think Dems can really dominate on this issue if they point out those problems, that climate scientists are being forced to move. They're being forced out of the government. They're being censored. They're they're wiping mentions of environmental issues or climate change off of their websites. They're fabricating things. Um, I think that that can have an impact. But I wonder, and this may be a question that we can't answer because this is getting pretty deep into punditry and you know projections of things that haven't happened yet. 
how does this like if Democrats come out and really push aggressively hard on this, knowing that the environment is an issue that voters care about in both parties, can it counter Trump just coming out and saying, well, look, we've got the cleanest air and water that we've had in history and carbon emissions have gone down since the year 2000. What else do you want me to do? We're doing great. Like, which one of those messages can win out with voters? I wonder. Well, it's the same as the 2018, you know, presidential election where, you know, President Trump is basically saying that everyone is going to get health care and that his stuff is the cheapest and it's definitely working and all that stuff. And people realize that their health care is getting more expensive and they actually had less access to health care. And the same thing's true here, right? I mean, asthma rates are still very, very high, right? I mean, you got the VW settlement money because more people died from diesel emissions than VW was reporting their cars doing, right? And so ultimately, this is a very local and personal issue. I don't think these large message battles actually are what determines people's interest in the environment and voting for it. It's more about the quality of their beaches, right? The notices that they get in the mail, EPA forces every water district to give you a notice in the mail every year that says, here's the quality of your water. And some of those notices show that you have poor quality water. Yeah, I totally agree, Jigger, that uh, he, he can't stop storms. He can't stop wildfires, no matter how much logging he promotes. There's nothing that he can do. I also would say that, you know, almost regardless of what happens to people's basements flooding, they tend to vote with their tribes. Well, to wrap up, I'm just going to echo what I've been saying. I do think this is a sign of the times and that the issue is becoming increasingly important for voters. Not a top issue, but more important. And people like Frank Luntz, a longtime Republican pollster, has said in recent months that clearly younger conservative voters think the Republican Party is so far out of touch with on environmental issues. The Republican Party, or at least the Trump campaign and Trump White House, are making their best attempt to respond. So we may see yet more messaging on this. A momentary pause here to talk about SunGrow, our sponsor. With more than 82 gigawatts of inverters deployed across the globe, SunGrow is now expanding rapidly in the U.S. It has more than 1.5 gigawatts of projects booked in 2019 alone. One of those projects is a 27-megawatt project for the Navajo Tribal Utility Authority. The project will double the amount of solar power that the Navajo Nation has in Kayenta. The 55 megawatts of solar is going to replace a coal plant that's closing later this year. Kayenta 2 will bring critical power to the Navajo Nation, where 15,000 people live without regular access to power. Excess solar generation is also going to be sold back to the grid to earn money for the Navajo Nation. SunGrow is not just focused on solar, either. Its energy storage inverters are integrated into 200 megawatt hours worth of battery projects across the U.S. Check out more about what SunGrow is up to at Solar Power International, held in Salt Lake this September. SunGrow is at booth 2211. You can also find out more at sungrowpower.com. Next up, we're tackling a topic that happened a few weeks back, but our listeners were wondering why we didn't cover it It is New York's big climate push. New York State and New York City are both taking a big swing at carbon emissions. In June, the state legislature set a goal of cutting emissions 85 percent by 2050 and getting to net zero emissions reductions in the electricity sector by then. New York City, meanwhile, passed a target to slash emissions from commercial buildings by 40 percent in 2030 and 80 percent by 2050. New York 
has a crazy amount of activity underway. It wants three gigawatts of batteries in the coming decades. It's putting a billion dollars into solar deployment and R&D. It wants nine gigawatts of offshore wind by 2035. And it also wants to go beyond electricity and apply the target to transportation and heating and cooling, which is unique when you look at how it compares to other states. So Jigger, let's talk about how this deal came together. It was a long political fight. What were the conditions in New York that finally pushed this thing through that got Governor Cuomo and the environmental groups aligned? Well, you know, just to benchmark it, the buildings uh, legislation that was passed in New York City was basically the same exact legislation that Bloomberg tried to pass in New York City 10 years earlier. So it wasn't different, bolder, etc. It was actually almost the same, and they just couldn't pass it 10 years earlier. So I think it is important to note that the content, it just took 10 years, I think, to get everyone on side. And, you know, the politics of New York were interesting, right? I mean, Governor Cuomo got a challenger to his left during the gubernatorial campaign. And, you know, even though Governor Cuomo won in a landslide, I think the fact that he had to answer for was he really being responsive to climate really put it into his brain. I do think that the fact that AOC lives in New York City and is constantly talking about the Green New Deal is also a part of it. Um, But the other thing is that there was a companion bill with the Green... Uh, with the green buildings deal in Albany around uh, capping rents. So the building owners benefited by being able to sort of rate base a lot of these costs and passing them along to renters. And then Albany took that right away from them in a separate bill. So the politics couldn't have been more thorny on the New York City buildings side of the ledger. Um, just to give you a flavor for where this has started. Okay, so New York State now wants to cut emissions 85% by 2050 across a bunch of different sectors. The state has only slashed emissions, slashing is the wrong word, the state has dropped emissions only 8% between 1990 and 2015, um, according to the state's uh, GHG inventory. So it has a long way to go. Even though it's investing a ton of money into renewable energy, uh, still only incremental improvements. So there's there's a a huge leap it needs to take. Catherine, tell us about implementation of this law, both the political implementation and like what needs to happen in New York to actually achieve these goals. Yeah. So for those of us who've been filing almost on a weekly basis in the New York Rev for the last five years, this was actually really refreshing because it's like, all right, guys, we got to step on the gas and get this done. And here's what we're doing. So we're still early stages, right? So it's still launching all the implementation. Um, But remember, so the, the goal previously for renewables was 50% by 2030, and now it's 70%. The first two solicitations that NYSERDA put out for renewables, they got twice the amount that was in the solicitation offered. So there is a pent-up demand to deploy in that state. There is no issue in getting renewable energy companies to come and develop in that state. And I'm assuming with this third solicitation that's in that's in process, 
Um, and they're just going to continue to build on that, that more and more companies will come into the state. On the solar front itself, so their goal, you had said six gigawatts by 2025, the solar market has never slowed down. You know, it has slowed down elsewhere in the country, but in New York, it has not slowed down. Even in 2018 and 2017, it went up while the rest of the country was being hit by tariffs. So the state has been really, really ready to open up for business. The offshore, now now that we can figure out how we do offshore, nine gigawatts by 2030 when, remember the peak demand in New York is only 30 gigawatts. Right now there's only 40 gigawatts total in generation and this is nine gigawatts in offshore. That's huge. And that's just on the generation side. On the building side, of course, efficiency, they say 30% of our reductions have to come, of our CO2 reductions have to come from efficiency. So they're focusing on heat pumps and um, beneficial electrification. They're just, there seems to be, an ability to get this done. Not just that the goals are high, but that there is a lot of business interest, and I don't think they're going to have any trouble meeting it. So you mentioned New York Rev. This is the reforming the energy vision process that we've discussed over the years. It's a 10-year regulatory reform process designed to make distribution electricity markets flatter, more real-time, more dynamic, so that you can get a bunch of different competitors with a lot of different resources, you know, s- selling energy, clean energy into the distribution grid. Um, it's a very difficult process. Again, it, they set it out as a 10-year program, but it's still been slower than they imagined. I guess the question is, something like that, which is already really ambitious, how does it fit into this climate plan, this, this GHG reduction plan? Do they operate separately or does it now get influenced by this larger political uh, long-term goal? Yeah, so here's the thing. The utilities are already transitioning. They're putting together their distribution system implementation plans. They've been able during the last five years to test drive non-wires alternatives and bring your own thermostat programs. And so those have been tested and shown to be effective. They've had to tweak some things, but... I think they're ready to amp up now. They, they've they had five years to experiment and try to see who's interested. They've had way more interest than they ever expected. So I think they're ready. They they definitely know how to do it, you know. I mean, I do think the utilities have done nothing but delay for five years. But I do think that they have spent some of that time educating their workers to be able to figure out how to get them ready for change management. Um the one thing I would highlight. My in, God, has it been five years? Uh, it, yes. Oh my yeah, God. Yeah, no, it's it's embarrassing actually how little progress they've made in five years. But I do think that the change management folks at least have been hired, and you know, there's <laughs> there's management afoot. The consultants and the change management yeah. folks are always getting jobs. Exactly. <laughs> Situations like that. But the one the one thing I do want to highlight here is that right now the way the legislation has been drafted. It does feel like this is a war against natural gas. And I think when you look over the next 12 to 18 months and you see the implementation difficulties, we'll see if that language gets softened or not. But for instance, I was talking to Bloom Energy. They're a little worried that some of this legislation means that they're not going to be able to build more bloom boxes, even though fuel cells are considered renewable in the state of New York and in the, in the regulations. Um, and so I, I do think that during the messiness in the implementation phase, 
We'll see. But New York State really, I think, is the first state in the country to declare war through legislation on natural gas. Yeah. So I can't speak specifically to the New York State law, but I can provide a little bit more color to the New York City building law. Again, they're trying to drop emissions by 80 percent by 2050 in New York City. That's Mayor Bill de Blasio's version of the Green New Deal. Uh, We actually had a a podcast about this on the interchange feed, and we talked to a couple uh, pros who are working on commercial energy, and they do a lot of cogen units. And they were like, look, because they're basically trying to ban natural gas in the city, we have a lot of cogen projects that we're working on right now that we're worried we won't be able to get done. I mean, is cogeneration, which is a highly efficient way of taking natural gas and turning it into um, electricity and heat, uh, is that going to be penalized? Are we trying to eliminate so much natural gas that we can't even use, you know, on-site cogen units? So that's a that's a bigger question for implementation within New York City, and I suspect that they're going to have to answer that question within New York State as well. And as you said, Jigger, the same thing applies to fuel cells, which are a very efficient way of using natural gas. Yeah, properties in New York City uh, are given a greenhouse gas budget, and they have to measure and report on reductions. So they may be able to figure out how to do that and find savings elsewhere. One of the things people don't know is that in New York City, because of their use of dirty power plants, uh, today, an HVAC unit working on a heat pump is actually worse for the planet than burning number six fuel oil. And so so switching to electric heat pumps in New York City requires greening up the grid to save emissions. The grid is notoriously dirty in New York City. So let's broaden this to the national context to wrap up. We've got two huge economies, California and New York, with extremely aggressive climate change plans. These are basically the equivalent of two medium-sized countries establishing some of the most ambitious climate plans that we've seen. What's the impact around the rest of the country? Usually as these two states act, a lot of other states follow. Will we see similar ambition around the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I think, and it's not necessarily because California and New York are are doing it because those are definitely blue states, but you're seeing, you know, New Mexico, Minnesota, you know, middle of the country states doing it too, and that's for economic reasons as much as anything. Yeah, I mean, we're we're investing in one of the largest dairies in the United States today, um, in the Midwest, to support California's low carbon fuel standard credits. I think when you think about um, the offshore wind potential in New York State, I think you're going to see a lot of knock-on effects down to North Carolina, Virginia, New Jersey, other places. I think, you know, when you think about the grid integration work that's being done finally by the CCAs in California, I mean, East Bay um, CCA did the first um, resource ad uh, adequacy contract for a behind-the-meter battery. And the reason they could do that is because they procure wholesale power. And so having a battery that they have access to reduces their cost of procuring wholesale power. This is also true for regular utilities, but they've never offered it to people who install behind-the-meter batteries. So the CCA movement is actually making DERs and other things more transparent in California. And I do think the knock-on effects of what's happening in California there are going to translate to other states. And so 
Interestingly enough, I think California and New York have radically different approaches to reaching their goal because New York is already 60% clean electricity from hydro and nuclear. And, you know, California has a long ways to go on that front. But I think that um, the tools that they use are so radically different that states will have a lot to choose from. Let's wrap by talking about a delightful service that we Americans see as our God-given right, air conditioning. I am certainly not using air conditioning right now. I'm in my recording booth, and it is about 10 degrees hotter than it is in the room outside. 90% of U.S. homes have some kind of air conditioning. That's the most in the world, I think. I think it rivals Japan. In fact, when I read that stat, I was kind of surprised. I didn't realize Japan had so much air conditioning. Um and although AC can cause some strain on the grid in the summer months, it's been an undeniably wonderful thing for improving health care, helping the elderly and other people vulnerable to heat, or just making us all more comfortable. You know, we're really used to it. But every summer, we see some kind of analysis about the damning impacts of air conditioning. It's the next climate killer. It's overused. We don't know how to use it within buildings. It's a tool of the patriarchy. The New York Times style section stirred up this year's debate after it asked simply, do Americans need air conditioning? Things spun out of control after a staff writer at The Atlantic declared on Twitter that AC is sexist and called for a ban. That set in motion the social media outrage and the hot takes from conservative outlets. And, you know, you know how all this goes. Suddenly, like one half of the country thinks the other half of the country wants to send a government repair person to your house to rip out the compressors and evaporator coils in your AC unit and melt them down to make the pans that they'll hand back to you once you're standing in a food rationing line. I bring this up because this outrage cycle happens every summer season. But more importantly, as it gets hotter, AC use is exploding around the world in regions that never needed it. And there is a very serious question. How do we cool the world without baking the climate? So on to the row over uh, air conditioning here in the U.S., sparked by the New York Times style section. Catherine, is air conditioning gender prejudice? I think it's prejudice based on how much clothing you wear. So for people who wear three-piece wool suits in the summer, it's just fine. And for people who wear fewer clothing, items of clothing, and have to throw on sweaters, it's not. I think we overcool our buildings and we don't, you know, we don't use very efficient air conditioning. So while um, LEDs are 70% efficient and solar is 40% efficient, air conditioning is 14% efficient. So we could do a whole lot better in a lot of ways, not just based on our temperature setting. Okay. So this was actually quite interesting to me because I read the tweet about air conditioning being sexist as a reason to ban air conditioning. And I scoffed at it. I was like, okay, how much more woke can you get? Um, but I actually looked back and it turns out that this argument that air conditioning is sexist comes from an article in 2015, a, a peer reviewed piece in the journal Nature. And they showed that, uh, you know, that our temperature settings in buildings uh, are based on metabolic rates, standard values for metabolic rates. And they're based on the average male. And it may actually overestimate the female metabolic rate by up to 35%. And so when we think about our standard temperatures within buildings, uh, they're actually a lot more comfortable for men than women. And so I thought initially like it was about the clothing issue, but it turns out that there's like actually some science behind it. So I thought that was quite interesting. 
Yeah, Stephen, I've I've read about that and heard about it for a long time and completely agree. In fact, most science experiments are done on men. So it's not (laughs) it's not at all surprising to me. Um, But I think this is a much, much larger issue. And the sustainable energy for all group um, and the Kigali cooling efficiency program has shown that over 1.1 billion people globally face immediate danger and health risks from lack of cooling. And this isn't just like cooling for comfort. This is about food safety and vaccines and health. And there is an enormous need to try to get people air conditioning for a number of other reasons than for comfort. Okay, so air conditioning is expanding globally for that reason. And because there are just many regions around the world that are now needing air conditioning because they're experiencing worse heat waves. Um, Bloomberg New Energy Finance expects air conditioning demand to increase 150% by 2050, equal to the entire energy demand of Europe. So significant. Jigger, how do you think about AC use within the context of total energy use? Like, is this is this a big problem? Well, I mean, it's certainly a big problem. I, look, I think that, I think we have to acknowledge that air conditioning is one of those things that has taken a long time for people to adopt. You know, Carrier invented his modern air conditioner in 1902. He died in 1950 before air conditioning took off. So all the money that Carrier Corporation made was after he died. Um, The U.S. didn't really deploy air conditioning at scale into the late 80s and then into the 90s. and now India is catching up, and I get it, right? That's a lot of additional load. One of the things that I've told um, uh, colleagues in India is that they should just mandate um, thermal storage in all of their commercial air conditioning systems. It's actually less than a 2.5% increase in the cost of the air, condi- air conditioning system to put like a CalMax system on it so you can basically make cold water at night or whenever you have a duck curve or whatever it is, right? Whenever you have too much renewable energy, you can just make chilled water and then you can blow air over it later, right? So it actually allows you to modulate the demand on the electricity grid. Um, And it's really not that big of a deal. It's actually something that I thought was sorely missing in the New York City uh, green law was actually just mandating thermal storage, uh, which we invented in like 1901. But I think we also have to keep this in context. Um, at the same time that we're all worried about air conditioning, the you know the area that's going to grow far faster than air conditioning is data center electricity usage. So, you know, let's just keep some of this stuff in context. I also think that there is a ton of technology now. I mean, air source heat pumps are so much better today than they were 15 years ago, right? And there's a lot of people moving to heat pumps just because they save a lot of money versus traditional air conditioning. Um, You also have much higher efficiency approaches to air conditioning. For instance, uh, tri-gen systems where you use, um, you know, natural gas. Like, for instance, like a a convenience store. A lot of convenience stores need cooling and hot water for the prepared food section and electricity. And so they're able to get, you know, something, you know, on the order of because of the inefficiency of air conditioning when you include all the energy efficiency benefits – they're getting like 130% of the, of the BTUs out of natural gas because, because they're replacing something that's so inefficient. 
Yeah, so uh, this was something that came into my consciousness during uh, when I was um, I was moderating the energy panel in Davos, and Fatih Birol, who's the head of the International Energy Agency, said, we're not thinking about this, but while a lot of countries are able to deploy technologies um, to keep demand growth down and have lower demand growth, that the AC and cooling piece is going to continue to rise. So we're going to go from 1.6 billion air conditioning units today to 5.6 billion by 2050. And that's that's huge. So that's more than just, um, this is about making super efficient air conditioning units. There's a global cooling prize that was announced in India. Um, There's a company that's state supported that's like a five-star ee rating for air conditioning and this is for the middle growing middle class remember a lot of these countries are also growing their middle class and so you know it's it's really about economic growth in addition to being able to provide really much needed services but it is something that we need to think about from a technology perspective and the u.s as the innovator of the world should be developing these technologies too well you both made my point well I find it absurd when publications like the New York Times or others raise these questions about banning air conditioning. Do we need air conditioning? Of course we need air conditioning. And saying that we should live without air conditioning is an extremely elitist thing to say. It's a very privileged thing to say. I mean, think about all the people who are suffering, who are sick, who are vulnerable, uh, who need access to the healthcare system, who need, you know, clean air cycled on a regular basis. Like we need air conditioning. We just need to make it more efficient. And there are a lot of people around the world who are living in areas where they need air conditioning and can improve their quality of life. So it's a technology issue. And the question is, how can we do this better, cheaper, and way more efficiently? So I agree with both of your points. And Jigger, you teased um, a couple different technologies that you think are promising as complements or as replacements to traditional air conditioning. A few jumped to mind for me when I thought about this story. Um, some are you know, non-technological, some are technological. I think a really good one for a lot of cities to think through and building owners is to just paint their roofs white or to, to install green roofs. And that can go a long way to uh, both reducing the temperature in a building, uh, reducing cooling needs, and also creating you know the urban heat island effect. So it impacts other buildings around you. And that was recently mandated in New York City, right? That's right. With, yeah, that's um, right. For new buildings or, or massively renovated buildings. Yes, that is correct. Um, there's also stuff like mixed mode air conditioning, where you use this combination of ventilated air from the outside and mechanically cooled air from the inside, and that can create a vastly more efficient system. You mentioned um, air source heat pumps. Um, You mentioned sort of demand management, just finding new ways to pair solar generation in particular to match AC demand. And then thermal energy storage is extremely promising and already cost-effective and widely used in places like California, where you just create that ice overnight and use that ice to cool a building in the middle of the day. So there's lots of good options that we have. Considering what makes sense where is what we should be talking about, not whether we should live without air conditioning. Look, I totally agree. I mean, I just think, you know, as someone who goes to India regularly and, you know, a lot of relatives who, you know, they most people in India don't have air conditioning in their homes. And for the ones who can afford to, they air conditioning, they air condition one room um, of their home, right? So it's, um, 
Yeah, it's something that, you know, right now in India, there it's about 115 degrees. So you can imagine air conditioning is pretty damn important. Let's go to free electrons. Uh, Jigger, let's go to you first. What's your free electron? Give us your story you've been thinking through. Anything interesting? So I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but uh, the Wall Street Journal-led uh, major report on Wednesday that PG&E knew for years that there was a huge risk from its aging transmission Good system. Good Lord. I thought you were going to say you were quitting this podcast. No, <laughs> no. And then, and then I have a dual chatter, right? So not only did PG&E... Like, know that they were at huge risk and acknowledge they didn't actually even inspect some of their lines now. There's also a glacier the size of Florida that is breaking off as we speak. And, um, you know, we'll probably add more to sea level rise than has occurred in the last 30 years. (sighs) There goes Florida. Yeah, you are Uh, the bearer of bad news. I am the bearer of bad news. I'm so sorry. Well... Um, cheer us up, Catherine, maybe? Yeah, man, I've got some good news. I spent the week at the inaugural Green Bank Summit. Uh, There are about a dozen green banks all over the country. Uh, The first was in Connecticut, but they're located all over. Uh, Maryland, Rhode Island, D.C., Montgomery County, um, Michigan, and they've been sort of experimenting with, you know, what can a green bank do and what kind of markets can it fill in uh, that the private sector and private financing won't do or that will be complementary to the private sector. So this week, Senators Markey, Van Hollen, and Schatz introduced the National Climate Bank. And um, this is sort of a little bit of a resuscitation, but also different than the Green Bank that was proposed 10 years ago by Senator Markey and Senator Van Hollen. Or at that point, they were in the House of Representatives, so they were congressmen at that point. Um, But what it does is it reduces uh, consumer energy costs, especially for low and middle income communities. Um, It crowds in private investment, often with blended financing and trying to attract investors into spaces like energy efficiency that traditionally a lot of banks won't invest in and accelerates the reduction of greenhouse gases. Of course, that is one of the core missions. There's also a really interesting cash for carbon proposal that tries to come up with new ways to retire coal plants early and new financing mechanisms for that. So it was pretty exciting. Um, granted, this is a long game. It's not going to it's not going to pass tomorrow. Um, but it's something that I think is sort of the first step toward implementation of a Green New Deal. And granted, there is not right now legislation that says this is what the Green New Deal is. But this is a piece of legislation that could help implement whatever anybody um, decides they want to do on climate change. So I think this is a great first step. I was reading an article this morning, actually, from Utility Dive about the most useful energy efficiency tools. And when we talk about the new wave of efficiency, we had a conversation about this on the podcast a couple months back, sort of the real-time efficiency, the the dramatic improvements in demand response, new technologies that are able to communicate with one another and send signals back to grid operators and be aggregated. Like all that stuff is happening, but it turns out that the real bread and butter stuff, home energy reports are still the best way to improve energy consumption through demand management programs. So in this utility dive article, they pointed out that residential behavioral programs account for 2% 
of utility spending, but they make up 10% of savings. And it was O-Power that really operationalized the social science around how people act when they feel competitive with one another. And the home energy reports that we see today really blossom because of that business model. And uh, you know, others have used the same social science impacts and research to develop their own business models. And so I think it's just very clear that no matter what technologies we throw at the problem, like human beings act in a certain way, and those are the bedrock principles of energy efficiency. And utilities should always stay true to those principles as they evolve their demand management programs, particularly on the residential side. That's cool. I love uh, I love low tech solutions. Well, that is it, folks. This is my last show for a few weeks. I've got a baby on the way, as I mentioned in the last show, and so when she comes. We are going to be off for a bit while I am on paternity hiatus. We will, of course, be back. Um, I can't say that I'll be well-rested, but we'll all be well-researched and we'll continue to have good conversations. So stay with us. My two co-hosts are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. I am Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll catch you in a few weeks. <laughs>